right, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night, September 17th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Jam-packed as jam-packed can be. And spoiler alert, probably going to lead the show with that line every night from at least now until like January, maybe just forever. Do not miss a show. We were loaded Sunday. We were loaded Tuesday. We're loaded tonight. Ton of information. I know all of you can't watch the live show. The replays are there right afterwards. We cut that 15-minute intro off about an hour afterwards, so... Don't complain. It's going to be gone before you know it. Uh, it's replayed in podcast the next morning. If you guys can't watch it on YouTube, also, we release a couple of mailbag podcast-only editions of Late Kick Extra. We released one this morning, actually. Had a lot of really good questions there. If you want to submit questions, Colin's got the contact info right there at the bottom of the screen. We have got a lot to talk about tonight. The Big Ten, we finally don't have to lead a show asking, when's the Big Ten going to make a move? Now, all of a sudden, we're asking a question I didn't think we were going to be asking, and that is, is the Pac-12 about to make a move? Looks like the Pac-12 is about to make a move. Fascinating developments over the last 24 to 36 hours out there, and we are going to dive into that in just a second. We have got several thoughts on a lot of games we haven't hit on to this point during the week. In our week three final thoughts, I got some intel from three SEC camps in particular. They are a week and change away from opening the season in the SEC. South Carolina has named a starting quarterback, and boy, was it a polarizing decision by Will Muschamp, and we will dive in. I got some pretty strong thoughts on that, and also the Ramen Noodle Express pulling into the station tonight with our five-pack of picks. We already gave you two of them. The remaining three are coming tonight. So subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Before we even dive into our opening segment, I mean, there was some really good news, some encouraging news as I was walking over from our office, which is kind of across the way over here to the studio. I got the alert on my phone and I saw the name Cade Mays and I said, oh, not more of this. But then I saw, what, what is this word? Eligible. Cade Mays wins his appeal, and if you haven't been tuned in the last couple of hours, Cade Mays has won his appeal, so he transfers from Georgia, he's going to Tennessee, NCAA says, nope, and then the NCAA got pushed by an actual competent lawyer that Cade Mays and his family had the good sense to hire, and so the NCAA buckled like the accordion that they are, now he wins his appeal, so you think, okay, he's good to go, suit him up against South Carolina. Not so fast. There's one more hurdle to clear, and that hurdle is in Birmingham, Alabama. It is the SEC League office. So now all eyes shift from Indianapolis to Birmingham. Sounds like a Southwest flight, but no, actually, it is just the final step in the appeals process of getting Cade Mays on the field. So that's the latest out of Knoxville. Now let's talk about the latest out of the Big Ten. Don't have to talk about the Big Ten a whole lot today. We did a full reaction video. Colin got it edited and put on the YouTube channel in like 37 seconds the other morning. Yesterday morning, I guess it was. It was a long Wednesday, wasn't it? So we're going to dive into all of it. The Big Ten, they're good to go. Kevin probably had the quote of the year on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel so far. I told him I was going to use it. I have attributed properly. Kevin said, and I quote, This feels a lot like when my daughter makes a mess and then wants a reward for cleaning up the mess. Yeah, that pretty much summarizes what just happened in the Big Ten, but I am a man of my word. To Kevin Warren and all the chancellors and presidents up there, I'm a man of my word. Told you guys, hey, get things straightened out. I don't care how big a mess you made. That's really on you, okay? That's a reflection on your reputation and maybe a stain on your brand. Just give us football. So looks like we're going to get football. Now, the immediate takeaway, and again, we did a full reaction video on this if you have missed it, so it's on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. I am ecstatic that the decision was made. And I've expressed that and will continue to express that. 
I didn't want to automatically shift into negative Nancy mode, but we're not out of the woods on this. And I think anyone who read through the protocol realizes, uh, especially if you're a coach or a player in the Big Ten, you realize now sort of the secondary and maybe more primary challenge begins. And the hurdle that's got to be cleared is a little bit higher maybe than the one that you just cleared to maybe get the season off the ground. Eight games in eight weeks, 21-day mandatory quarantine. If you test positive, if more than 5% of your roster in any one-day period test positive, you are out seven days. You cease all operations for seven days. Point is, there's no wiggle room here. The point is, they made such a mess of things on the front end that now they don't have any bye weeks built in. Now they don't have any reservoir weeks in between the last week of the regular season and the conference championship game like the SEC was able to build in. They just got to get it done. And these are very, very tough hurdles to clear. It's a very fine needle that you have to thread. But we do at least know where we stand in the Big Ten. Now we await a schedule release. How about that? The fabled second schedule release. Anybody can do one schedule release. We're doing two of them in the Big Ten. I can tell you our web department doesn't care. They'll take all the traffic they can get. That was not shocking, but I'll tell you what is shocking. 7 a.m. yesterday morning, John Wilner does a great job covering the Pac-12. Best by 10 miles covering the Pac-12. He works, obviously, out on the West Coast, and so you got to wait a little bit later in the mid-morning to early afternoon to get news from him because he's asleep when the rest of us are in our morning meetings. But he put out on Twitter yesterday, Uh, kind of a synopsis of the day that was in the Pac-12. And he said, 7 a.m., we woke up on the West Coast and it seemed like there was no hope. No one was even talking about playing football in October or maybe even the fall period in the Pac-12. And by 7 p.m., everything had changed. How did that happen? Well, the first whiff you got was when the Big Ten made their announcement and then you started to hear whispers from the West Coast. And then those whispers became louder. And As I've said before, you learn who to tune out and you learn who to tune into. And the folks that you usually tune into were saying, uh, hey, heads up, got some some things moving out here. Don't know what it's going to end up being, but we got some things moving. And then Gavin Newsom, unfamiliar name until recently in football circles, the governor of California, just kind of out of the blue says, "Uh, there's nothing that we've put in our guidelines that's keeping the Pac-12 from playing. And everyone did a collective gasp because uh, he said, well, that's been kind of misrepresented in the media. And trust me, the folks out there took notice. And Larry Scott and company, the commissioner of the Pac-12, they got their uh, you-know-what in gear. And they said, hold up, hold up, whoa, 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 whoa. And then there were subsequently a lot of really good guys reporting on this and girls reporting on this that quoted sources both on the record and anonymous to say, yeah, technically the guidelines say we can play. The problem is we can't practice. The guidelines say we can't practice. And then there was an anonymous source quoted as saying, well, you know, you could have five-on-five practice. You could take mental reps. You could do visual training. Uh, You know, obviously someone who's uh, buckled a chin strap a time or two in their life there, sarcasm intended. So anyway, you go throughout the day, and then you get news. It it feels like a week's passed. In reality, it's been a couple of hours. Then you get news, and the Oregon governor's talking, the California governor's talking. You get news that they're willing to bend. They're willing to rapidly revisit those protocols. And so by the time 7 p.m. rolls around, as Wilner so accurately put it, felt like the world had been turned upside down there. And so we've got a lot of rebuttals, and we've got a lot of revisiting, and where are we? So with that in mind, John Wilner and Bruce Feldman, I thought two guys that did phenomenal reporting today on this. Wilner uh, released a report 
a few hours ago. The details are this. Where do we stand tonight? It is currently September 17th, 7.08 p.m. Central Standard Time. Where do we stand? Pac-12 is looking to target a Halloween restart. Happy birthday, Nick Saban, by the way. October 31st. They want to play, according to John Wilner, an eight-game season. Now, what do they need? Well, a few things. They need approval from the presidents. They need some local restrictions eased. They seem semi-confident they can get this done. It doesn't seem like, in other words, there are 15 parties pulling in 15 different directions like it felt like at times with the Big Ten. Feels like a lot of people behind the scenes and have back-channeled this thing and feels like they're willing to move in the same direction. The LA schools, it looks like we'll be good to go. The restrictions that were in place in LA County look to be able to be lifted or at least modified. So USC, UCLA could be good to go. It's the Bay Area schools, Cal and Stanford. Uh, it's still a little ways to go there. So that's probably the biggest hurdle to clear. Got to get the restrictions taken care of. Then they need a consensus, according to John Wilner, on how camp would work. When would the schedule begin? How would it line up? And will you have synchronicity between everyone's camp schedule? You got to have that. After all that, you got to get the approval of the presidents, or as they call them in the Pac-12, CEOs. So that is operationally how things would play out. Bruce Feldman with The Athletic reached out to some head coaches today. <laughs> I'm laughing. It's serious. But my goodness, when you grant someone a little bit of anonymity, boy, are they willing to go off. And Bruce Feldman had a couple of three, maybe, Pac-12 head coaches that in no uncertain terms, in fact, terms we could never use on the show right now, uh, they said, we are not going to be physically ready to play by October 31st. Now, keep in mind, he didn't get every coach out there on the record, anonymously or otherwise. So it stands to reason there is a gulf. There is like a Grand Canyon's difference, to use a Western geographical analogy. There is a Grand Canyon's difference between the attitude that some of the head coaches have out there. And it's for obvious reasons. Some of them have been able to work out. Some of them have had access to their facility. You got other ones like UCLA, for example. To this moment, they haven't been able to get in their building. There was another one out there. I can't remember which one it was. They're allowed to go into their Facilities to use the bathroom, but they can't shower. All kinds of just crazy, asinine regulations put in place. And it's not the job of the football coach or the athletic director to put those in place. And they can't lift them either. Their local officials can. That's what they're working on right now. But, you know, Bruce Feldman had a number of coaches telling him, our guys have done combine work. That doesn't get you ready for a football season. That gets you ready for the combine. Some of them talked about doing kettlebell workouts in the parking lot. And so the fear amongst some out in the Pac-12 is, it's great if you could put a stamp of approval on a plan. How in the world are we going to be physically ready to play football? If COVID doesn't get us, we're going to have hamstring injuries all over the place. So there was a lot of optimism in the Big Ten because a lot of places in the Big Ten never stopped preparing. Ohio State never even so much as tapped their brakes. Like, they're ready. They're ready to play. Michigan, Wisconsin, like, they're fairly ready to play. Some of these folks out there like Stanford, their players have gone home. Not only have they not been working out and you don't know what in the world condition your players are going to come back in, they got to do a five-day mandatory quarantine when they come back. So a lot bigger mess that you have to solve. And I'll be honest with you, like I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. It was tough to envision maybe the Big Ten getting things started but the thing about the Big Ten was all the hurdles, all the roadblocks that were in place in the Big Ten, they put in their own way. So it was within their power to remove them, and they did eventually. In Greg Sankey's words earlier today, appearing on the SEC Network, they made a decision that confirmed our decision all along. Greg Sankey, man, that 
Mm, mm. He's handled things very well recently, to say the least. And so in the Pac-12, the point is the hurdles that are in place have not been put in place by any kind of university president or athletic director or chancellor or anything like that. So they think they can do it. We'll see. We got a lot of games coming up. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to look you in the eye or even off to the side and tell you, hey, this is the biggest weekend of the year. No, it's not. We haven't even started SEC play yet. But I will tell you this. I got several final thoughts on games. Some we've talked about, some we haven't. And I think we need to dive into it. This is a very underrated Saturday in the ACC. I'm also not going to insult your intelligence and suggest to you that the winner of Miami-Louisville coming out of this thing is a real threat to Clemson. Hey, Georgia Tech, if they pull off that upset... And it would be a home point spread upset over UCF. Hey, they may be a contender. They may be a dark horse. They're not necessarily in that context. But I want you to understand, these games like Miami-Louisville, let's start talking about that one since I'm already on it. These games like Miami-Louisville, this stuff matters beyond 2020. Uh, there is not a finish line to this season where the importance of some of these outcomes and the subsequent recruiting momentum you may get off of it just ceases to exist. This stuff matters 2020 and beyond. So we already broke this game down. If you missed the game breakdown and prediction, it is on the YouTube channel in its own individual video. But there are some really interesting dynamics in play here. I'll tell you the first one is it's a really big test for Miami secondary. And for that matter, facing this Louisville offense is going to be a test for any secondary in America. They are down, obviously, a premier defensive lineman in Greg Rousseau. They still got the horses there. think they can be very disruptive. On the flip side, offensively for Miami, Rhett Lashley, I think there is kind of an internal struggle when Miami looks at this game of understanding we want to incorporate tempo in our offense. That was one of the things that they stressed the moment Rhett Lashley walked in the building. Our offense was anemic last year. It had no life to it. It was so boring to watch for us on the sideline. It had to be boring to watch in the stands and at home. And so you know that, and you want to do better, and you brought in Derek King, and you hope that you have that infusion of talent necessary to do it. But at the same time, how does that line up with the best way for Miami to go about winning this football game? Because I'm not so sure running 95 plays or attempting to is the best approach for them here. They got the size and physicality advantage. They probably have the athletic advantage. It's Louisville that wants to turn this into a track meet. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if you don't see kind of somewhat of a pause button put on that whole incorporation of tempo and try and go basketball on grass from Miami. Cameron Harris, guys like that, that offensive line needs to stand up this week. They need to use the advantages they have. Now, the pick on this game that we had was Miami straight up, and so we took Miami plus the points. We think the wrong team's favored here. We think their ability to disrupt up front is going to be plenty enough to cause some problems and eventually a few mistakes on the Louisville side of things. That, and we think they have an edge in special teams. So we took Miami uh, straight up and obviously took a couple of points if they want to charitably give those to us. Now, we have not broken down the Georgia Tech game. They are playing host to UCF. Excited, very excited am I to watch this. Jeff Sims hype, it's off the charts in Atlanta. I think soon enough in his career, it'll be off the charts nationally. It sparked last week. There were sparks. Okay, Jeff Sims didn't have, uh, you know, like a vintage Baker Mayfield to a tongue of Iloa Joe Burrow type game but he showed promise. He made some terrible mistakes, but he made some great plays and showed a lot of promise to where you said, wow, that guy's going to be good. How, how quickly is he going to be really good? Like, that's the question. Ideally, it would be this week. They are a seven and a half point underdog at home are the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. This is UCF's first game. And remember, UCF had a significant amount of guys opt out. So they're dealing with those first game unknowns, just like everyone else has faced. And they had guys opt out and that affected their two deep in several different positions. 
And when you consider the style of play, what's the identity, uh, hopefully, of UCF? A lot of timing, a lot of rhythm, everything needs to operate in sync, and that's not always what we saw in the first week of the season for most P5s last week. So you got a G5 here, albeit one at the very top of the mountain, do they come out firing? I think you'll know pretty early on in this one. We're going to have a play on this game, by the way. It's going to be one of our five officials. Uh, it's going to be a total. My opinion on the side here is a uh, few too many points for Tech. I believe that when you talk about tempo, you talk about dictating terms. Very early on, you know, if they can take the old crowbar to the shin, which I think they'll be able to do and ugly that game up quite a bit, that's Georgia Tech's game. And if they do, uh, that total sitting there at 63. Don't know if it gets close to 63. That's a big if, so... We're kind of hedging there, and I'll tell you about it more later on. How about Houston at Baylor? This is not an ACC game, but we didn't talk about this one either. Baylor opened it around a touchdown favorite. They've uh, since dropped that thing to about four and a half. So someone loves Houston out there. Dave Aranda debuts as head coach with the Baylor Bears. I have a little clue what to expect there. I will say this. Houston's defense, they're very excited about the transfers they got in, but that's just it. I got a whole lot of transfers whole lot of transfer pieces, and they're trying to incorporate them specifically in the defensive secondary, so remains to be seen there for Houston. Um, the potential there is really good for them to have nice balance offensively, but the thing about it is I could say the same thing for Baylor with uh, Charlie Brewer, John Lovett, guys like that. And so you got a retooled, talented with the infusion of transfers, but retooled secondary with Houston. Don't necessarily know if I like the matchup, experience at quarterback versus a retooled secondary there. So we lean because of that towards Baylor, and we actually lean towards Baylor to cover. So whoever loves Houston there, we've kind of been on the opposite side of that one. Those are our week three final thoughts. SEC Intel, we have done this segment for several weeks now. SEC football cranks up this upcoming Saturday. Actually, Colin, you know what? Since we're going to cut this, three, two, one. All right, here we go. We are a little over a week away from the start of the SEC season. Intel, we've been delivering stuff that we've heard, whispers, some of it's been on message boards, some of it's been in communication with our network of team insiders, and boy, do we leverage that thing every single day. We should have to pay so much money for that, but we don't because they're our friends. And so I got a few places that I want to take you tonight to let you know what's happening. Uh, we were Certainly not the first in the clubhouse, but we were pretty ahead of the curve on the Dewan Mathis deal at Georgia. Had some Georgia fans in really salty fashion questioning what in the world we could possibly know in the comment section about Dewan Mathis starting for Georgia. Well, Dewan Mathis is going to start the Arkansas game for Georgia. Kirby Smart hasn't made that official. I'm telling you right now, uh, unless he comes down with something in the next week or unless he gets hurt in the next week, he's going to be your starting quarterback. JT Daniels is still not medically clear. I can't stress that enough. There's always just been this assumption. I think someone said it two months ago, and everyone just started believing it because someone said it, that he would magically be cleared by the time the start of the season rolled around. Well, he hasn't been yet. So we got to revisit this if and when some doctor up there says, okay, you're good to play. The feedback that we've gotten about Dewan Mathis is about two or three weeks ago, he started to have a surge in camp. I had several players on Georgia's team currently talking about it, had other people behind the scenes there talking about it. And I said, really? Okay. Because you get feedback like that from 50 different camps this time of year. So then we start to filter that out, and the same people are talking to Juan Mathis up a week later. And I took more note. And what we've eventually gotten to is, it's his job right now. That's where we think we are. In fact, that's where I know we are with Georgia as of today. Now, here's the feedback you get. Here's the expectation level. 
people tell you he's a phenomenal athlete, he's a freak athlete. There are going to be some moments where you go, wow. And then there are going to be some moments where you go, what? Kind of like Jeff Sims last week with Georgia Tech. Jeff Sims, you know, that opening drive, you say, look at this quarterback for Georgia Tech. What in the world did he just do? I don't think the second part is going to be allowed to happen by Kirby Smart. Because, see, here's what Kirby Smart knows he has. He knows he's got multiple future NFL offensive linemen, multiple future NFL running backs. He's got, he's got very dependable and physical assets at wide receiver like George Pickens, the guy Colin's showing you right now. And he knows he's got a 6'6 freak athlete at quarterback who can fall forward for him on any third and short situation, and also a guy who can make plays with his legs on broken third and long situations. I don't know how many times they are going to um, be throwing the ball. That's what I'm telling you. So if you'll remember last year, I want to say it was, they opened against Vanderbilt on the road and everyone was excited. They thought there were going to be more elements incorporated into the offense. And as soon as Kirby Smart and Dan Lanning and them figured out that Vanderbilt couldn't get a first down on them, they shut it down. And I don't think the Arkansas game will be any different. They'll go in there, they'll figure out Arkansas can't move the ball on us, and then they'll shut it down. And they'll get out of there. They don't care if it's 17 to 6, 20 to 3. They don't care. They'll get out of there. And they would have bought themselves at that time one more week. You could think about that as one more week of camp. That's essentially what I think about the Georgia-Arkansas game, even though this isn't a game breakdown. I'll tell you the other thing to watch in that Arkansas game, though, and to listen to if you're a Georgia fan close to the scene up there. Obvious passing downs. In other words, Obvious pass sets where you know pass pro is going to be something you can focus on. If you sit in there third and seven, for example, I, I don't, I'm not going to say I lack confidence. I don't have the slightest clue what to expect from Georgia in pass pro early on. I, I know the returns out of their camp have been, hey, run blocking well ahead of pass pro here. Not shocking, but what was the entire gripe at the end of last year? Man, in order to get over these humps, Alabama or LSU in that case, we got to be able to stretch the field, push the ball down the field. Well, you got to be able to pass pro in order to do that. So you're not going to play an SEC title game in week one. You're playing Arkansas in week one, but you got to be able to eventually get there. So that's what we're watching with and hearing from Georgia. How about this question as we kind of transition from Georgia to Alabama? I had a Georgia guy ask me in the podcast today, what do I think about two quarterback systems? And I kind of tied it into what I thought is just one of the dumbest comments people make about quarterbacks. It, it, it's one of those where someone said it one time, and it sounded cool, like it would look good on a bumper sticker, so it just stuck. And it's not true, automatically. Someone said, well, you know, if you got two quarterbacks, you don't have any quarterbacks, which is trash. It's totally false. Here's what happens. What happens sometimes is you got a quarterback battle, and the reason it's a battle is because you got two stud quarterbacks. You could also have a situation where you got no stud quarterbacks and neither one of them's emerged. And so both of those are categorized as quarterback battles. Uh, they are night and day different situations. So I'm telling you all that to tell you this. As much as everyone's been talking about the two quarterback situation at Georgia, I'm telling you, I look at Alabama as having a two quarterback situation right now. And by that, I mean two of them they think they can win with. I'm telling you, they feel confident. If, they, if, if Mac Jones disappeared from this planet tonight, and they knew they had to start Bryce Young against Missouri next week. They'd be comfortable with it. It may change some things. They'd be comfortable with it. They think he's going to be a star. Steve Sarkeesian and that offensive staff really think he's going to be a star. My mind goes back to a couple of years ago when we were hearing similar things about Tua Tonga-Vailoa. No one told you, dude, Jalen Hurts sucks. It was the opposite. Jalen Hurts is really good. It's like Mac Jones is really good. But this guy behind him is really good too. And so... It took until halftime in the national title game for us to see Tua Tonga-Vailoa play meaningful downs for Alabama that year. 
I don't think I need to remind you how that game and that season ended. And the point being, I just have to wonder if it changed anything about Nick Saban's approach. As of this moment, I don't think there's much doubt Mac Jones is the guy there. I don't think there's any doubt about that, and I don't think there's any doubt he's the guy who takes the field against Missouri. The only thing that I'm suggesting to you is I go back to that year. You know, that was a year, those Jalen and Tua years, and this is why it was an ironic statement from a Georgia fan telling me, hey, you got two quarterbacks, you have none. Dude, both of those years, a two-quarterback team beat you. One time for a national title, one time for an SEC title. Did Saban have two quarterbacks or no quarterbacks? I think he had two quarterbacks. So you could have a situation in Athens and Tuscaloosa this year, ultimately, where you got two quarterback situations. The only thing I care about is, do you have two you can win with, one you can win with, or none that you think you can win with? you got to be a lot more nuanced in your understanding of this than just saying, oh, there's a quarterback competition here, or oh, they got a quarterback controversy, which is a statement we never say on this program. We believe in competition, not controversy. The only thing controversial is if none of them can win. Because then the controversy is, what in the world are we going to do? So I say all that, and I'll move on after this. Remember, as much as your opinion may be formulated on a lot of this stuff, if you're a Bama fan, go back to a few years ago. You were going into, I believe, a season opener against Southern California. And Blake Barnett was a former five-star guy, and it was his time. And it was his team. I think that was the year after Coker, I believe. Anyway, so... Blake Barnett, the entire spring, the entire summer, the entire fall camp series, that's the guy. He's going to be the starter, and there's this kid from Texas who is uh, probably going to take a couple of years to develop. Then you get a little bit further into camp. Hey, that Jalen Hurts kid, like, there are whispers. He's pretty good. He's going to be able to be a player in the future. Then you get closer to game week, and Jalen Hurts, could he be pushing for, like, legitimate playing time? But you had it in your mind the whole summer. It's Blake Barnett's job. So you went month on, month on end thinking this is Blake Barnett's job. Over the span of like 30 minutes, it changed in that season opener. And what I'm telling you is that's how quickly this stuff can change. You, you got three or four series that go bad, and then you got a guy come in and light it up. That's how quickly it can change. This is not Major League Baseball. You don't play 162 games. Every snap is so meaningful, especially in this league this year where you're playing 10 conference games. There is no, um, there is no Catala Community College on your schedule to steal a uh, local reference geographically from back home. So all I'm saying is two quarterback situations could exist far outside of just Athens, Georgia this year. Now, how about Florida as we wrap up this segment? How about Florida and specifically offensive line, which is where we start and end the questions with Florida virtually every year now, it seems. I was looking at Thomas Goldcamp, had some really good coverage and thoughts on this over at uh, Swamp 24-7 yesterday or today. This is the key to Florida season. As I said, it always seems to be. Thomas Goldcamp made some good points here, and I'm not so sure I don't agree with him. I think he looks at the situation, and they are not all-American caliber by any stretch at a lot of these positions, especially tackle, and I, like him, am still concerned about their ability when they face elite edge rushers, and it's going to happen several times a year when you play in the league Florida does. Yeah, I'm not saying they're without concern, but I think there is promise to be found here in the fact that they do return a lot of guys. Returning starters is not the end-all, be-all. But they got a combination here that I think is promising. They got returning experience. And finally, they got a group of guys that aren't having to learn a new system again. And it's been a rotating door of different philosophies down there for a little while if you're a Florida offensive lineman. So, yeah, they may have question marks, tackle, and what is the best combination? Do you have true SEC caliber offensive tackles playing tackle? Or do you got guys that have really more been recruited to play interior, having to kick out there for lack of options. Yeah, that's a question. 
But I'll tell you one thing you can't take solace in. I don't think you'll see a ton of confusion. So if they don't get it done, it's just because they're flat out not good enough. I don't think it's going to be a lot of, well, he's talented. Why did he whiff there? That's, there you go. That week one, week two, week three, installation problems. Don't think that's going to be the theme with Florida this year. All right. I intentionally didn't talk about South Carolina there because I'm going to talk about South Carolina here. This was, whew, it was a heated day in Columbia, South Carolina. I did radio over in the Carolinas today with Mark Ryan and man, yeah, apparently you guys had been calling in long before I did over there. Will Muschamp named Colin Hill the starter at Carolina. Not Ryan Helensky, Colin Hill. Colin Hill, if you're unfamiliar, is a transfer. He's a grad transfer. Came in from Colorado State. Yes, the same Colorado State that new offensive coordinator Mike Bobo was at. So there was the connection. And a lot of people, I'll give credit to Sherbert and the guys over at the Big Spur, they were on this for quite a while. I don't think anyone who's a member over there is surprised at this announcement. And, you know, they kind of flagged this thing several weeks in advance. So what they flagged ends up becoming a reality. Colin Hill is named the starter for the Tennessee game. I am intentionally phrasing it like that because I don't think really a whole lot of decision has been made past that. Let's dive into this. As is usually the case, anytime you got a quarterback battle, it is inevitably, did the head coach make the right call? Did Will Muschamp make the right call? 99% of the time, I'm going to answer yes, because it's the head coach's team. So he tends to know a little bit more than I do sitting behind the microphone. But for those of you who are split on this, or those of you who are on the other side of the fence, and you think Ryan Helensky was done wrong, I've talked to some of you today already. I'm going to ask this. I'm not going to insult your opinion. It's your opinion, just like I got one. One's not worth more than the other one. But I'll ask you, if you think that Ryan Helensky was done wrong here, if you think the wrong decision was made, what are you selling? That's really what it comes down to. If you're Will Muschamp, what is your program selling? And who are you accountable to? Because my feelings on this have always been feelings and loyalty. Like those things are really great if you're putting together a PTA council. That's wonderful and you can afford to do it there. They do not mix with the true theme of competition. Feelings and loyalty can get in the way of the theme of competition. So when I ask what are you selling, what are you selling? When you're Will Muschamp, when he went into Ryan Helensky's living room, when they talked to Colin Hill about coming in, did they tell one of them, in this case, I guess, Helensky, did they tell Helensky, this is your job? You know, you commit here, you come here, it's going to be your job unless you, you know, uh, decide to leave, you get hurt, like it's going to be your job. Did they sell him on that? If they did, he was done wrong. I tend to believe Will Muschamp doesn't recruit like that. I tend to believe they recruit on the basis of competition. And that's the way the big boys do it. I can assure you Nick Saban sits in your living room and has no problem telling you, the day you come on campus, I'm trying to recruit over you. Ryan Day's doing the same thing. Kirby Smart's doing the same thing. And yeah, they got a lot of guys who transfer out of there, but they also win a lot, don't they? And so what kind of culture do you want instilled into your program there? Do you want one where someone is stroked on the cheek and, well, you've been here longer, it's your job? You can have it. You can also go four and eight. Don't be calling for a guy's job if you're going to complain when he makes his choice as to who he thinks, and this is a key part of this entire argument, gives his team the best chance to win. Because when I asked about accountability, Will Muschamp's not accountable to Ryan Helensky. He is accountable to his entire locker room, Ryan Helensky included. Who gives those guys the best chance to win? Will Muschamp can coach another 20 years. Those guys get three or four or five years in college. Yeah, so he's accountable to them. It's really important to put the right guy on the field. Here's my question. How convinced is Will Muschamp this is the right move? I know he's the head man there, and it falls on his shoulders, and he's the one who makes the announcement. But what have we talked about all offseason with Carolina? Mike Bobo came in, and he's a new offensive coordinator. Everyone believes in him. Hype is through the roof. 
And my assumption has been, maybe this is the first time Muschamp's got a coordinator there he fully trusts. He's fully willing to just toss the keys to and say, all right, you got offense, man. I'll be over here if you need me. I'm asking that because of this. For all we know, and I can't confirm this, I have not heard this, but I'm saying for all we know, it could have been a dynamic where Muschamp was sitting there saying, you know, if all things are equal, I'd probably like to lean Ryan Helensky. And Mike Bobo said, Colin Hill's my guy. I think he's the guy who gives us the best shot to win. And what if Will Muschamp said, if that's your guy, that's your guy. That's what I hired you to do. You don't know, nor do I, if that's the way it actually played out. So, hey, competition can be a give and competition can be a take. Because as far as I could hear today, all Will Muschamp said was, Colin Hill's our starter for Tennessee. I hope Ryan Helensky heard that as a one-week decision. That's really what I hope he heard. Because um, unless something drastically bad happens, I know that South Carolina is scheduled to have a game the next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. So you're one injury away. You're one two or three series stretch away from being right back on that field and taking the job back. So I really hope that's the mentality that Ryan Helensky has. So again, shout out to the big spur, man, because they were way ahead of this over there. So much of this, though, and this is the point I want to make, is out of Colin Hill's hands regardless. He could be the right choice for all I know. And it's still out of his hands because if offensive line doesn't pan out over there, it's irrelevant. If that running back stable with Marshawn Lloyd out, if they don't fall into place behind him, if, if wide receivers not dependable, if they don't have their act together defensively, so much of that's out of Colin. In fact, all of it's out of Colin Hill's control. So I say all that to say, uh, let's not watch the first three series of this Tennessee game and say, all right, well, I've made my conclusion. And for that matter, I would encourage you, make your decision now. Whether you love the move or hate the move, make the move now. One of the founding principles on this show that we have is we do not do armchair quarterbacking and we don't do hindsight quarterbacking. We don't wait to see how things turn out in order to decide whether a decision was the right one because the decision maker never has the benefit of hindsight. Will Muschamp cannot afford to sit around and wait until after the Tennessee game, watch the film, watch the replay five times, and then decide whether it was the right decision or not. You take the information you have at hand currently, and then you make the best decision to hopefully put you in a position to win moving forward. So if you have a problem with this decision, state it now. And I have no problem with you complaining if things go off the rails. What I don't want to hear is, oh, we'll see how it goes. And then you jump down his throat six weeks from now. That, they'll tolerate some places. I don't think we're going to tolerate it here. The Ramen Noodle Express. It is our first feature Ramen Noodle Express of the year. Here's how this works. We release our early favorite bet of the entire week on the Sunday night show. And we did that what was it, four nights ago now, and we gave you, I believe, the Duke game, Duke minus six. And then Tuesday night, we gave you another one. We gave you a Notre Dame minus 25 and a half. I could hand these out at any point in the week. It just turns out that tonight, we're giving you the final three plays in the Ramen Noodle Express. So hopefully you don't have to eat them this upcoming week. Colin, let's do it. Ramen Noodle Express, final three picks. Liberty is opening the season at Western Kentucky. I am not doing breakdowns on these games. These are data-based picks. I'm not going to give you a lot of anecdotal reasoning behind it. I'm not going to break down the interior offensive line situation for the Liberty Flames. I'm just telling you they're giving us 14 and a hook, and we are taking those points. We love the under in UCF versus Georgia Tech. Likewise, we love the under in the Miami-Louisville game. And that has ballooned up from 59 to 64 and a half. Has it crested? Probably. So I jump on that right now. In fact, we have already jumped on all these. So those are the five picks 
in the debut edition for at least the 2020 season of the Ramen Noodle Express. If, again, you disagree with any of these plays, I'll be happy to listen to you now. What we won't have any time for is you to come in at 7.38 p.m. on Saturday night and tell us how bad the picks were. That we don't have time for, because like I just said with Will Muschamp, we will not have the benefit of hindsight on these bets, so we don't want you to have it either. Speak now or forever hold your peace. We will have, as I said, our best bet for week four when the SEC is cranking up on Sunday night. So be sure to be here for the Sunday night show. Our Sunday night shows are so jam-packed. And we get it in in under an hour. We got this show in in under an hour, didn't we? Always around 40 minutes. So we'll have full reaction to week three Sunday night. Do me a favor. Follow me on Twitter. Got a lot going on over the weekend. At Late Kick Josh there. And subscribe both to the YouTube channel and to the podcast, the Late Kick podcast, if you haven't already. Five-star reviews on the podcast, on the Apple side at least. We want to get to 1,000. Tani tends to think we can do it by the end of the year. I tend to think we can do it a lot sooner than that. So the five-star reviews, and you guys have come through in more than flying colors in every avenue. Uh, For the Enigma himself, Director Colin. For Jordan on the podcast side of things, whose face maybe you one day will see. I'm Josh Payton. Unfortunately, you're stuck with my face every week, but thank you for sticking with it in light of my face. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the games. We'll see you back here Sunday night. God bless. God bless.